So how's your life these days? That's a crazy question, isn't it? You feel it's a bit strained, possibly? A little bit out of control, maybe? Difficult to breathe? You find your life more pressured? People increasingly pushy and your smile less visited than, say, maybe two decades ago? Or maybe even six months ago? Have you encountered that the song has become more strained than it is sweet? Has the complexity of life in the midst of this 21st century global crisis stolen the songs of life's simplicity? Well, if it has, if that's the way you feel right now, then you will quickly relate to one of my favorite pet stories ever. If you've never heard it before, you're in for a treat. It's the story of a parakeet by the name of Chippy, whose true life experience resembles more of the daily pressures that you might now be experiencing than it does the routine life of a bird in a cage. I first learned about Chippy many, many years ago in the introduction of a marvelous book by the title, In the Eye of the Storm. And I'm going to let the author relate this story to you because it was actually a story that he found in a newspaper. Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage and the next he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. (laughs) She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. And the phone rang, and she turned to pick it up, and she barely said hello when (laughs) Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum and opened the bag and there was Chippy, still alive but pretty stunned. (laughs) And since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom and turned on the faucet and held Chippy under the running water. (laughs) Then realizing that Chippy was now soaked and shivering, she did what any passionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hair dryer and she blasted the pet with hot air. Poor Chippy. He never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who had initially written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. It's hard not to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. That's enough to steal the song from the stoutest heart, isn't it? That, to me, describes what most people are feeling after six months of being locked down, shut in, and masked over. Can you relate to Chippy? Most of us can. One minute you're seated in familiar territory with a song on your lips, and then the pink slip comes, or the rejection letter arrives, or the doctor calls, or the divorce papers are de- delivered, or the check bounces, or a policeman knocks on your door, or you catch a virus, and sup, you're sucked in to a black cavern of doubts, 
doused with the cold water of reality and stung with the hot air of empty promises. The life that had been so calm is now so stormy. You're hailstormed by demands, assailed by doubts, pummeled by questions, and somewhere in all of that trauma, you lose your joy. Somewhere in the storm, you lose your song. Does that sound a little bit like your life today? Countless demands pulling you apart in every direction. And add insult to injury, you think now, right now, that I'm about to challenge you to do even more. I can hear you now. Give me help. I'm only one person. There are only 24 hours in a day. The song is already almost gone. The motivation is just not there. How can it all be done? Well, Chippy's story and your stories are not isolated, unique scenes, by the way. All of it sounds like a lot like a day in the life of Jesus. A particular day in the life of Jesus. The premise we're working on in this short series is that undertaking ministry in the church really kind of revolves around and means understanding the ministry of Christ and what he did. So what was it that motivated Christ to minister in the midst of a chaotic world when he encountered the slithering, strangling fingers of stress closing in all around him? Maybe if we can begin to figure it out, we can come to grips with it before the grip overcomes us. Someone has suggested that what we are about to look at occurs in the midst of the second most stressful day in the life of Jesus, our Lord. The first being the day of his crucifixion. What really piques my curiosity is that both of these days, the day we're going to look at today and the day of his crucifixion, are the only two days in the life of Jesus that all four gospel writers record in their accounts. I want to look carefully at this snapshot in Christ's life because there is much to learn here. Let's get an overview. Um, Well, actually, you got an overview already. Uh, Carolyn read that passage out of Mark 6 this morning. And I could tell even as she was reading it, she was catching the drift because of her facial expressions and even the kind of under-her-breath comment that she made about people. (laughs) Thank you for that, by the way. (laughs) This is an ideal section of Christ's life to view how the master handles ministry because this is often what ministry is like. By comparing the texts of Matthew 14, 1 to 36, Luke 9, 1 to 17, John 6, 1 to 21, and right here in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 34, you can get a lot of background on this 24-hour period of time in Jesus' life. The second most stressful day of his life, in my opinion. This scene occurred during the midpoint of Jesus' career, so to speak. The peak, the height of his ministry. The most stressful place. He was smack between extreme popularity and ultimate rejection. Right there, right on the cusp. And he'd been ministering for over a year based out of Capernaum. 
And multitudes had jumped on board with the ministry. And now, in his second year, Jesus launches his Galilean ministry. He has sent his disciples into the mission field to get their ministry feet wet while he himself continues to travel, calling people into the kingdom, preaching repentance and that the kingdom of God was at hand. In about a year from this point, the tide will turn against Jesus and his ministry on earth will come to an abrupt end in a vicious act of total rejection as he is impaled on a cross, a cruel instrument of torture and death for criminals. And the first sign of that rejection had just occurred. Jesus' forerunner, the one chosen to prepare his way in the way of his coming, John the Baptist, his own cousin, had been brutally murdered. This is a day that you and I would have stayed home from work. This is the day that we would have called out sick. It's a day in which ministry is the last thing in the world you want to think about. So Jesus here in this text is on an emotional roller coaster. Remember, Jesus is human, fully human. Take a minute and examine the flow. Mark chapter 6. Jesus is desperate for rest. He's been smothered with demands for over a year. Someone gives him the news that he just lost his cousin. One of the few people in the world who understood Jesus and knew about his ministry. Think about losing your best friend or your spouse or your child and you might get a taste or an inkling of what Jesus is feeling right now. And now these disciples returning from their mission tell Jesus that the same guy who killed John is looking for him. So Jesus decides to get away for a while, but lo and behold, the disciples returned from their journey and want to talk, and they're excited and they're enthralled and anxious to replay all of their experiences out on the field And Jesus is overwhelmed with emotion as he and his companions are reunited. And he goes from stress to sorrow to celebration. What better reason to get away than to spend time with his closest friends at a point when they all need to refuel and refocus? And so he gets in a boat with them and they set off a remote place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee Bethsaida, Julius, a place with few, very few inhabitants, a place that they can be alone and quiet, or so they think, but not so. As they get out of the boat, they're greeted by not just a mere few people, but as you compare all the passages and you read, you find out that it's at least 5,000 men plus women and children. That's a few people clamoring for your attention. 
And they all have their own list of demands for Jesus. They're hungry, they're tired, they're curious, they're sick and in need of something that Jesus can provide all too well ministry. Now, let me ask you a question. What would you do in that situation? So far, it's been quite a day, and it's not even half over for Jesus. It started out very calm, but now has all the makings of complete chaos. How would you handle that? How do you handle that? Here's one writer's description of what Jesus was facing at this point. Intense sorrow, okay? The death of a friend and a relative. Immeasurable joy, a homecoming with his own followers. Immense crowds, a Niagara of people followed him everywhere he was going. Insensitive interruptions. He sought rest and he got people. Incredible demands, thousands clamored for his touch. What would you do? I know what I'd do. I'd probably stomp and sigh and mumble something about how unfair it all was, but the question to ask isn't really what you and I would do, right? It's not even WWJD. What would Jesus do? The question we should ask is, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Because we have it on record. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going. And they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. Well, the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. So what did Jesus do? He felt compassion for them because they were like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I'm often intrigued by that. He didn't just set out to meet their needs with food. and He didn't just set out to start healing all their sick. He taught them many things. He didn't slam things. He didn't stomp his feet. He didn't even sigh. He was moved with compassion, it says, in verse 34. For the last few weeks, we've been basically looking at the mandate for Jesus' ministry and saw that ours is the same because we're sent out the same way with the same message that Jesus was. Today, the central issue is not Jesus' mandate, but Jesus' motivation for ministry. And that also should be ours. When we're riding that roller coaster of emotional strain and personal storms and physical stress and spiritual needs of people, when they wage a, an assault on our, on our sanity or ministry or other, or, or to others must be motivated by one thing and one thing alone, God's heart beating in our heart. 
God's heart beats with compassion. The motivation for ministry is compassion. The ministry of the church should be motivated by the compassion of Christ. It's that simple. I want to identify at least four elements of a ministry motivated by compassion in these five verses of Mark chapter 6. And we're going to do that this week and next. But it should serve as sort of a pattern for us both corporately as the church and for each of us individually as we interact with people in the course of our own ministry. So number one is this. True compassion makes itself available. It makes itself available. Again, verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus. They reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come by yourselves away to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they didn't have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to to the secluded place by themselves. I'm reminding you of this text. And the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. Stop right there. That's a tough one when you're strung out already, isn't it? Jeffrey Collins in the, in the March-April issue of Christian Reader some years ago reflects the difficulty of this principle He writes, it had been a trying week at our love and action office. At five o'clock on Friday, I was looking forward to having a quiet dinner with friends, and then the phone rang. Jeff, it's Jimmy, I heard a quivering voice say. Jimmy, who suffered from several AIDS-related illnesses, was one of our regular clients. I'm really sick, Jeff. I've got a fever. Please help me. I was angry, he said. After a 60-hour work week, I didn't want to hear about Jimmy. But I promised to be right over. Still, during the drive over, I complained to God about the entire inconvenience of it. And the moment I walked in the door, I could smell the vomit. Jimmy was on the sofa, shivering in distress. I wiped his forehead and then got a bucket of soapy water to clean up the mess. And I managed to maintain a facade of concern, even though I was raging inside. Jimmy's friend, Russ, who also had AIDS, came down the stairs. The odor made Russ sick, too. And as I cleaned the carpet around Russ's chair, I was ready to explode inside. Then Russ startled me with the words, I understand. I understand. What, Russ? Jimmy asked weakly. I understand who Jesus is. Russ said through tears. He's like Jeff. Weeping, I hugged Russ and I prayed with him. And that night, Russ trusted Jesus as his personal Savior. A God who had used me to show his love in spite of myself. Now, Jesus' ministry was motivated not by physical comfort, personal convenience, or perfect conditions, but spiritual compassion. Sometimes he allowed the urgency of rest to be replaced by the importance of ministry. Did you get that? Sometimes he allowed the urgency of rest to be replaced by the importance 
of ministry. Now, that sounds contrary to what most of us hear and read, isn't it? Doesn't it? The regular teaching is that urgency of ministry should not be allowed to crowd out the importance of rest. But I need to say this, that Jesus' life indicates that sometimes, sometimes ministry is more important than food. And there's text there for you. Sometimes ministry is more important than sleep. And there are times when ministry is more important than rest. But you know what the ticket is? You just got to know when. Otherwise, you burn out. I can describe mistakes that I have made over the course of 31 years in this. One came immediately when I started in the ministry, only probably a year in. And I've described this to you before, so I won't take the time, but just know this. I made this mistake early in the ministry, meeting with a family who claimed it was an absolute emergency that I meet with them in my home that night. And we were afraid that they were going to leave the church if we didn't meet with them. And that was the night that Denise came home from the hospital following our our, our youngest son's birth. The night she came home from the hospital. So I had them come over. And it turned out it wasn't that much of an emergency. And to this day, I regret that. But Jesus and his disciples, because they left the church anyway, and it didn't matter. Jesus and his disciples, they needed privacy. They needed rest. You just got to know when it's important to make ministry trump that. And Jesus did. Anyone who expects to be productive, whether it's in your job or at school or in your family or for Christ, must understand the necessity of rest and recuperation. Otherwise, like I said, burnout's going to be the result. But Jesus and his disciples were at a point when they needed some rest and relaxation. They had been dealing with so many people and with such intensity that they didn't even have time to eat. Look at what it says in verse 31 here. And they said to him, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. You ever got, gotten that busy in your life? Like every day, pastor. <laughs> That's not right. And I'm not trying to make a case for overwork. Remember, you got to know when. Well, I've gotten that busy, and it's, not that, and it's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for the ministry either. As I just related to you early on, I had no sense of balance in this ministry. And there were no assistant pastors. There were no secretaries then. There were no people in leadership positions to do these things. We didn't even live in Fayette at the time. We lived in Augusta. In fact, I was still in Bible college full-time traveling to South Portland every day. I was following the pattern I had established when I was very far from God, playing music in bars every single night of the week and working a full-time state job, only somehow this thing called ministry was sanitized because it was ministry. But I want to tell you, it was not sanitized. It was insanity. Ministry can start out with the right motive, but it can morph into an addiction or a guilt trip or an ego trip. 
My wife used to get a tad agitated, and rightly so. She worried about me. Jesus' loved ones probably felt the same way here in verse 31, right? As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 3, just uh, going back a couple of chapters, in verses 20 and 21, I'm going to read it on the New American Standard. What you see on the screen is the NIV. But um, my eyesight's so bad that I can't even read it on the screen there, so... I'm going to give it to you out of the New American Standard. It says, And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Here we go, right? Here's his family attempting to do an intervention with Jesus. They thought it was insanity what he was doing But I think Jesus' loved ones came to take charge of him because they felt that overwork had affected him mentally. Obviously, they were wrong, but their intentions were probably good. The fact is, is that Jesus never let ministry get out of control. He always left it in the Father's control. And that's how he knew when it was important to minister rather than rest or vice versa. He knew precisely when to ease up and when to keep going because he was always in tune with his father. Are you? Are you in tune with your father to make those decisions? Nothing is ever out of control when it is under the father's control. Can I say that again? Nothing is ever out of control when it's under the father's control. That's where true rest lies, when we trust God to bring, life, bring life's demands under his sovereign jurisdiction. That takes effort. That takes prayer. That takes trust. That takes intentional intimacy with the Father. And if there's anything that we all need right now during this time in our country's life and the world's life, it's those things intimacy with the Father. Because that's something we rarely engage in our hurry-up lives, engage in. That's why we're stressed out. Not because of our activity level. Jesus' schedule was every bit as full as any one of ours. We're stressed out because the first thing we allow to go is our commitment to the Father's will. We get driven by what's urgently in front of us instead of checking out with God first what we should be doing. Let me ask you a few questions. (laughs) You say, no way. (laughs) Because I ask myself these questions all the time. Are you a little harried and seemingly unable to balance your life? How much time are you actually giving to God? How much time are you devoting to seeking his schedule for your life? We don't have time to commit to church involvements or study or prayer, but we stay up till all hours of the night on the internet binge-watching Netflix or reading crazy posts on Facebook. You know, we, we can't drive to church once a week because it's, well... I don't know, it's easier to stay home, I guess. Watch it on TV. 
but we can drive to a restaurant to eat out because now they're open. Uh, Don't ask me to commit to a small group two hours a week because I'm too tired, man. I need some time to myself. Listen, I don't mean to sound cynical or judgmental, but the fact is we'll think nothing of burning ourselves out all week on things that have no eternal value whatsoever and then quickly opt out of the things that Jesus said will make an impact for eternity. That, maybe that's not true of you, but maybe it is. Only you can decide that. I'm not standing in judgment. You know who you are. Read biographies of the early Christians and the choices they made for Christ. They gave themselves entirely to the ministry. Worldly involvements took on importance only as necessary to accomplish their ministry. Their jobs were secondary. Their possessions were expendable. Their faith and service to Christ was the center of their life, not an add-on to an already overtaxed schedule. But you may ask, who really lives that way? Well, Francis Chan, author of Crazy Love, asks that question at the end of his book. If you've never read it, I suggest you do. It's an older book now, but it's definitely worth your time. And it's very convicting. And he offers some contemporary examples of these kinds of things. Here's one about a man named Nathan Barlow. A medical doctor who chose to utilize his skills in Ethiopia for more than 60 years, Nathan dedicated his life to helping people with mossy foot, a disease. Mossy foot is a debilitating condition primarily found in rural districts on people who work in soil of volcanic origin, okay? It causes swelling and ulcers in the feet and in the legs. The subsequent deformity and the swelling, repeated ulcerations and secondary infections make people with mossy foot social outcasts, kind of like lepers in Jesus' day. Well, he says, I met Nathan shortly before he died. His daughter, Sharon Daly, attends my church when he was pastoring and brought him to her home from Ethiopia when his health started to fail. After only a few weeks, he couldn't handle being in the States. (laughs) The people he loved were still in Ethiopia. So his daughter flew him back home so he could spend his last days there. Once Nathan got a toothache, the pain of which was so intense that he had to fly away from the mission field to get health and medical attention, Nathan told the dentist that he didn't ever want to leave the mission field for the sake of his teeth again, so he had the dentist pull out all of his teeth and give him false ones. So he wouldn't slow God's work down in Ethiopia. These guys are a breed apart. This amazing man was the first to help these outcasts, and he spent his life doing it. Yet he died quietly. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of this guy? Some of you have. Not many of you have. Yet he died quietly, without a lot of attention. No one really knew about him. It surprised me. Francis says that such a man of God would faithfully serve for so many years despite minimal recognition. It's a beautiful thing to witness. The work Nathan started continues through his website, which you can look up, and it's 
You can read a biography about him now. It's www.mossyfoot.com. Here's the question. Are you and I honestly doing so much ministry for Christ that we have to cut back to stay sane? Now, maybe you are. Are you so busy serving Christ that people are actually urging you to take time off for your spiritual, emotional, and physical health? Or are we so strung out on a runaway schedule of relentless selfish pursuits that we couldn't possibly fit in a visit to a sick sick person or a phone call to pray with a neighbor or whatever? You fill in the blank. Honestly, I think the reason we don't have time to serve the Savior is because we're too busy serving ourselves. And you and I both know the difference in our hearts because... We know where that balance lies, I think. Jesus went to Galilee because he knew he needed rest. Pray and talk with his disciples and to prepare them for the coming year of ministry, which he knew about, but they did not. But they were quickly interrupted by this crowd. And how many times has this happened to you? I don't know what's happened to me million times. It's happened to me countless times. It happened, it happens all the time. It happened this week. But every time it happens, I learn something from it. I learned that oftentimes the spiritual needs of others don't fall into my date book and schedule. And so friends, you need to be flexible. Our compassion needs to be available That's the first point. Sometimes at the expense of our own convenience or comfort. Jesus stepped out of the boat and walked into Bedlam. Mark says that the people ran around the lake approximately 10 miles in order to beat them there when they found out that Jesus was going there. They were on foot and some of them got there ahead of Jesus. Most scholars believe that there were upwards of 25,000 people vying for Jesus' attention. That's a lot of people that want you. Jesus had every right in the world to be irritated and annoyed, but he could have told the crowd to go home. But you know what? He didn't. Instead, he felt compassion, it says, for the people. Their needs meant more to him than his inconvenience or comfort. How how do I feel? How do you feel when people interrupt your day? Your busy day. You see people as potential opportunities for showing Christ's love or as intrusions into your personal world. The perspective we have will pinpoint our true attitude toward ministry. True compassion makes itself available. Secondly, true compassion is expressed in our attitude. That's the second part of verse 34 here in Mark chapter 6. It says, when he went ashore, he saw the large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Mark writes, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Doesn't say that he analyzed the situation. He didn't reason it all out. He didn't weigh the pros and the cons. You know what he did? He weighed his heart. And his heart went out to them. There are five simple words in this text that we should all want as our epitaph when we die, right? He felt compassion for them or she felt compassion for them. 
It was the hallmark of Jesus' life. Shouldn't it be ours? This is what Colossians 3.12 says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. But you know what? When our schedules constrain us, compassion cannot move us. When our schedules constrain us, compassion cannot move us. Notice in that text that Paul instructs us to put on a heart of compassion. It's something that we do. It's something that we have a responsibility to do. It's not something that just automatically happens. It's something that we need to actively and intentionally pursue. And the word compassion here is a seriously intense word in the New Testament. It refers to this visceral area of the body, your intestines, your gut. When Matthew and Mark used the word, they literally meant that Jesus was deeply moved in his intestines, the seat of his emotions. He had gut-wrenching emotional pain for these intruders into his privacy. Today we refer to the center of our emotions as the heart. So in other words, you could translate this verse and say, that his heart broke for them. His heart broke for them. Jesus was a passionate man. He felt the pain of others in his own being. That is precisely what we desperately need in this world right now, especially right now and in the church, people who feel other people's pain instead of always just whining about their own. We cannot truly heal the wounds of others which we do not feel within ourselves. I'm not talking our own personal pain, but we need to feel the pain of somebody else. That's what it means here in this verse that Jesus had. People who feel other people's pain. And I know that I need to work on this in my own life desperately. I need to literally literally labor to put this on. And that's what it says here in Colossians chapter 3. To clothe ourselves with this. It doesn't come naturally to me. To some people it does. But that's the thing. It's supernatural. It's part of the Holy Spirit's ministry inside of us to make us more like Jesus. So I have made it a daily practice to ask God to help me with this. I try to begin every day by praying this prayer. Lord, Lord, give me your heart today. Give me your compassion today for people. Let my heart be broken. You know the prayer. Let my heart be broken for the same things that break yours. And that's the first character trait of a church and any Christian with the true attitude of compassion. Let's take this God-breathed reminder to heart that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Remember these words? They're not just applied to wedding ceremonies. You know, uh, previous to those love is, love is that, love, you know, love is patient, kind, and all this. But back up a little bit in 1 Corinthians 13 and see what Paul says in the first three verses. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to the poor, to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now you may recall that from 1986 to 1990, a man by the name of Frank Reed was held hostage in a Lebanon cell. For months at a time, Reed was blindfolded, living in complete darkness, or chained to a wall and kept in absolute silence. On one occasion, he was moved to another room, and although blindfolded, he could sense others in that room with him. And yet it was three weeks before he dared peek out to discover that he was chained next to Terry Anderson and Tom Sutherland. And although he was beaten and he was made ill and tormented, Reed felt most the lack of anyone caring. And he said in an interview with Time Magazine, quote, nothing I did mattered to anyone. I began to realize how withering it is to exist with not a single expression of caring around me. I learned one overriding fact. Mark it down. Caring is a powerful force. If no one cares, you're truly alone. Jesus' ministry was motivated by compassion. It was readily available, and he allowed it to shape his attitude. Shouldn't it be the same for you and me if we're going to be followers of Christ? Because if we as the people of Christ's body truly desire to be motivated by Jesus' kind of compassion, then let's ask God right now and every single day to give us the kind of heart that hurts for people and to make us a community that cares for people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know our sin. It lies ever before us. We know our weaknesses. We know that sometimes, Lord God, especially now in the world when lawlessness increases, love grows cold. We ask you, Lord God, that you would not allow that to happen to us. And so I pray for myself and for this congregation, Lord God, give us a compassionate heart, the heart of Jesus If we don't have it, give it to us. Break our hearts for the things that break yours. If we do have a heart of compassion, Lord God, help us to act on it according to the truth, by the power of your spirit, in the guidance of our Father's will. And may we disciple others in what that looks like. I pray, our Father, that in all of this, that the world that is just out of control right now would recognize the Jesus in us and see something different.
and that would draw them to the Savior. This I ask, Lord God, because it is the ministry of the kingdom. It's the ministry that you've called us to. It's the ministry that you modeled for us. So let us be about that business for the sake of your name. Amen.